Please take your Bibles and turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. Our focus this morning is once again, this evening actually also, is going to be on this subject of the complete armor of the Christian that God has given to us for our spiritual battle that every one of us is in. So I'll begin and read verse 10 through verse 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having, your, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Amen. Let's once again look to God in prayer and ask for his help as we come to the ministry of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you in particular for this portion of your word that tells us how we ought to engage the wicked one and all the heavenly hosts of wickedness, spiritual powers of darkness, in this battle in which you have placed us. So help us now to know your power, the power of your Holy Spirit in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. Bring the word with conviction. Bring the word with demonstration of your spirit and of power for the good of all of our souls. And we ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, in light of what we've heard over the last couple of weeks, if Satan comes and accuses us as Christians, how does the breastplate of righteousness protect us? How does the breastplate of righteousness protect the Christian? You may recall that last week, we've, maybe the last, well, yeah, last week in two messages... I don't remember what week it was, actually, when I started on the breastplate and so on. One of the last two weeks, uh, we focused on four elements, four parts of the Christian's armor, one of which was the breastplate of righteousness. We focused on that. Um, how does that breastplate of righteousness protect us when the wicked one accuses? And the answer is basically this, that I, as a Christian, can say I have the breastplate of righteousness, which means I have the righteousness of another. Not my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is perfect righteousness. It is divine righteousness. It is what Romans calls the righteousness of God. And that righteousness has been freely given to me, it has been imputed to me, to use language we'll come to in Romans chapter 5. And we can say that is really the biggest 
and the greatest aspect of what Paul calls the breastplate of righteousness. It is the fact and the knowledge that the Christian has credited to his account and made his own the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. Is there any other way that we could understand the breastplate of righteousness to work? I believe that there is, and that's what I want to focus on this morning and this evening as well. We're going to reconsider the breastplate of righteousness, not in the sense of um, correcting anything I said in the last couple of weeks, but to focus on another aspect of the breastplate of righteousness. Turn with me back to 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4. And we'll see a demonstration of a different way to understand, and from our perspective, to use what Paul calls the breastplate of righteousness in our battle against the wicked one, especially when he accuses us and accuses us falsely because he is the accuser of the brethren, the Bible tells us in Revelation, and he is also the father of lies, as Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John. Notice what Paul does here, and notice what he says. He says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. That's what an apostle is. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself. Yet I am not justified by, the, by this, but he who judges me is the Lord. You see what Paul does here. He doesn't say that people are accusing him of things and accusing him falsely, which they were. They were falsely accusing him. In fact, we came across that in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that we read earlier uh, this morning, just a few minutes ago. He's being falsely accused. He's being falsely accused by unbelieving people, men. But he was also, we could also say, they were the minions of the devil as well. Just like demons are, so were they. They're falsely accusing him. There's a sense in which we could say he strapped on a breastplate of righteousness, but he doesn't refer to the righteousness of Christ. He referred to something else. And you see what it is there in verse 2. He says, it is required in stewards, which I am, he's saying, that one be found faithful. And what he's saying is this. They can say what they want about me. I have a track record as an apostle, and it's a good one. I have been faithful to my Lord and my Master. That's what he's saying. Or go with me back to Acts chapter 23, and notice Paul doing a very similar thing, or I could say the same thing. In Acts chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. says, Paul, we read, I should say, Luke writes here, then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, Paul was standing before the Jewish council or the Jewish Sanhedrin, being tried in a court, if you will. He was being accused and again, falsely accused. And so here is the first thing he says in speaking to the council and making his defense of himself. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. So here he is again as the apostle, receiving accusations against himself, false accusations. He puts on a breastplate of righteousness, as you can see. But it's not the breastplate of righteousness that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, that saying, Christ died for me, how can you make any accusations against me? And then we read this, and the high priest Ananias, when Paul said this, that he lived in all good conscience, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. In other words, Paul was saying, as he faced these accusations and raising a defense, 
He was, in a sense, raising a breastplate. In neither case, 1 Corinthians 4 or Acts 23.1, in neither case was he talking about the fact that he was justified through the blood of Christ and by the righteousness of Christ. In each case, it was his own conduct that he referred to and he used, in a sense, to protect himself from these false accusations. And these are not isolated instances in the Bible or in the New Testament or in the life and, and writings of the Apostle Paul. If you go back and you question what I'm saying here and just leisurely read through 2 Corinthians this afternoon or this coming week, you'll find out that that's what Paul is doing almost in the entire epistle. He's making a defense of himself. He talks about how he has suffered. He talks about how much he has loved the Corinthians. He asked them, in light of those things, how they could say these things about him or believe others who are saying them. And on and on and on. You can go and read um, the whole second chapter of 1 Thessalonians and you see how Paul does the same thing. These are not isolated instances. To put it in terms of Ephesians 6.14, which says that you should um, use the breastplate of righteousness, that's what Paul is doing. That's the armor that we see Paul using here against these accusations of sinful men and of the devil himself. What does the breastplate of righteousness in these instances consist of then? It consists of Paul's integrity as a faithful Christian man and a faithful apostle. It consists in his good and godly conduct. It consists in his righteous living. It's the, bre the breastplate of righteousness viewed from that perspective. Righteous behavior results in a good conscience for a believer. And that's why Paul started out his defense against the Jewish Sanhedrin. I have lived in all good conscience until this day. This use of the breastplate of righteousness, if you will, is something we just sang about before I stood up here. I don't know if I've ever um, seen this hymn before, but Pastor Smith chose it. And just the first couple of stanzas express this point exactly and in a very succinct and poetic way. I'll read it. So let our lips and lives express the holy gospel we profess. So let our works and virtues shine to prove the doctrine all divine. Thus shall we best proclaim abroad the honors of our Savior God when his salvation reigns within and grace subdues the power of sin. Well, that's what Paul was saying. Grace is reigning within me. Grace, the grace of God in Christ, has subdued the power of sin in my life in a great way. And so when you raise false accusations against me, Certainly it is the righteousness of Christ that causes your arrows to just bounce off me and not to stick. But it's also my own knowledge that what you're saying about me is not true. I'm not the kind of evil man you're saying I am. By the grace of God, like Pastor Smith said, when Paul said, I, I, I really need to go through this exercise of demonstrating how what you're saying is not true. But trust me, I'm not boasting about it. I'm not boasting about myself. Any boasting I'm doing is about what God has done in me. And he said, it may not be profitable in the sense of, I'd rather not talk about myself like this, but it's necessary for the sake of his accusers. So before we go on to consider this subject in this matter that we're talking about here from the Word of God, I want to raise a very significant question or two that may be in some of your minds. First question is this, how does this kind of a breastplate then, the breastplate of righteousness that you, that may be I, are saying the breastplate of righteousness 
consists in part of the righteous acts of the saints. How does that measure up to Christ's righteousness? Well, it doesn't really measure up to Christ's righteousness at all. I'll state it this way a little bit later. We could call it um, a, a secondary significance. It's, a, it's an element of the breastplate of righteousness that we could say is of secondary significance in comparison to Christ's perfect righteousness. All right, that's the answer to that briefly. We'll look at that more in a bit. Second question, how can we say that this is a legitimate way to understand the breastplate of righteousness? Obviously, I'm convinced it is, or I wouldn't be standing here saying this right now. How is it that way? Well, I think, first of all, it's because of it fits the terminology of what we're talking about. Breastplate, protection against Satan's accusations of righteousness. It fits that language. Second, it's very biblical. It's a very biblical idea. It's very biblical teaching. What we see the Apostle Paul saying in places like 1 Corinthians 4, Acts 23, 1, all of 2 Corinthians, etc., etc. And then thirdly, it's, co- it's a common Reformed way of understanding the breastplate of righteousness. Calvin said this in commenting on Ephesians 6.14. Some imagine that this, that is the breastplate of righteousness, refers to a freely bestowed righteousness or to the imputation of righteousness by which pardon of sin is obtained. And that's what I've preached the last two weeks. Calvin says, but the subject now under discussion is a blameless life. Paul enjoins us to be adorned first with integrity, that's the belt of truth, and next with a devout and holy life. So Calvin's saying that's what the the breastplate of righteousness is especially referring to. Now, I don't agree with Calvin to just look at it as only talking about the righteousness of your conduct. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said, the breastplate of righteousness refers to the integrity of a good conscience. Matthew Poole said it refers to righteousness of conversation, an old English way of saying conduct or living. Hendrickson said the breastplate is the devout and holy life of the believer. Matthew Henry said it this way, the righteousness of Christ refers to both the imputed righteousness of Christ and the righteousness implanted in the believer. And that's the view that I'm telling you today. It's both of those things. William Gurnall, who wrote that huge book on the armor, looked at it the same way as Matthew Henry. It refers to both things, and so I've preached the first part already. Today I'm going to preach on the second part. Again, to be clear, my view is that This is another part of what Paul has in view here when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Remember what I noted last week, I think, that this language of the breastplate of righteousness and really every part of the armor is extremely condensed language. Paul is saying a lot in these brief phrases and in these figures of speech, as I mentioned. It's the belt of truth. What a huge subject. The shoes of the gospel of peace. Again, a huge subject. And here, the breastplate of righteousness. I think it's big enough language, it's a big enough figure to include both of these things. It's not just talking, as Calvin said, about the believer's righteous conduct, but I believe that that is included. So in summary at this point, there are two aspects of the breastplate of righteousness, that when accusations come to you from ultimately from the wicked one, they may come just through thoughts suggested to your mind. They may come to you with, um, because of a guilty conscience. And when you read the Word of God, because you have sin you're dealing with, 
you overblow the statements of the Word of God and you come away from it and conclude, I'm not a Christian. There's no way I can be a Christian given the way that I conduct myself on a day-to-day basis. But you might really be a Christian. And so this aspect of the breastplate of righteousness can be helpful to you as well as the other aspect we've already looked at. No, there are two aspects to the breastplate of righteousness. First of all, Christ's work for us on the cross. That's the imputed righteousness the Puritans referred to. But then also Christ's work within the believer, the imparted or implanted righteousness, to use the words of Matthew Henry or William Gurnall. What Christ has done in you, The Bible also calls that righteousness. So today's messages are going to be on the breastplate of righteousness. This is what I would entitle this sermon. The breastplate of righteousness, level two. All right? And I call it level two, the second level, because it's a second heading in my preaching on the breastplate of righteousness. And then also... It is, as I already said, of secondary significance. It's not saying this is something absolutely secondary. No, it's important. It's in the Word of God, and it's all over the Word of God. We need to think this way, and we need to put on the whole armor of God. But does what Christ has done in you, your righteous conduct, does that rise to the level of power and certainty of the work that Christ did on the cross in your place and on your behalf? Of course not. But if you're a Christian, it's a real thing. And it's there because of the power of God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, by which he raised Christ from the dead. That same power has worked those things in you, and that becomes part of what we call, or Paul called, the breastplate of righteousness. So let's notice, as we take on this subject then, the breastplate of righteousness, speaking of the righteous life of the saints or the righteous deeds of the saints, Let's notice what the Bible says, first of all, about righteous behavior. The righteous behavior of Christians. Secondly, we'll notice what the Bible teaches about a good conscience. Paul spoke about that in Acts 23.1. And then thirdly, and I'm going to plan to get to the first two this morning, the third this evening, how righteous conduct or a good conscience works as armor against the devil's schemes. So first of all, then, righteous behavior. What does the Bible say about it? It says a ton. So we're limited to just a few little snippets. But if you read your Bible regularly and you're not already used to thinking this way, as you think about this and are asking yourself as you read in the coming weeks and days, is this really so? It'll jump at you from everywhere. First of all, Luke Chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Luke 1, verses 5 and 6. We go way back to the beginning of the gospel according to Luke. And we have this account of Zacharias, the prince, prince, priest. The father of John the Baptist. And here's what we read about him and his wife, Elizabeth. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now you might be tempted to say, well, they were believers. So obviously when it says... That they were both righteous before God, that means they had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And that's their righteousness. That's what it's talking about. That's why they were called righteous. Well, that observation is certainly true, but that is not what the text is talking about. And the way we know that is we just read the whole verse. 
They were both righteous before God, comma, now follows the explanation, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. In other words, they lived out their profession of faith in God. That's what walking means. It means living. And it means that they're living, trying to follow all of God's commandments and ordinances, and they did that blamelessly. In other words, they, like the Apostle Paul, were living in all good conscience. We'll get to the conscience a little bit later, but that's the idea. Let's look at a few statements in Romans chapter 6. We'll come there shortly. But even in this epistle, which is about the righteousness of God, and that especially means the righteousness of Jesus Christ given freely to the believer. It's the righteousness that clothes him, and that is the main element, I would say, of the breastplate of righteousness, the free gift of the perfect righteousness of Christ given to each believer. Nevertheless, even in this epistle in which, in which the Apostle Paul is expounding that perfect righteousness that comes as a free gift, he still talks about this other aspect of righteousness, the way the believer lives. And look, look at a few verses in Romans 6. Let's start with verse 13. He says to the believer, the one who has confessed his sins, who has believed in Christ, who's had his sins washed away by the blood of Christ, and is given the perfect righteousness of Christ, here was what he says to him. He says, and, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What are your members? What's the parts of your body? So don't present your hands to unrighteousness to sin. Don't present your feet as unrighteousness to sin, to walk in sinful paths. Don't present your tongue as an, in, as an instrument to sin, that member of your body to sin, to speak in wicked ways against your neighbors, your friends, your brethren, not against God. Don't do that. What's he talking about? He's talking about the way that you live your life. And so he says, present your members tongue, hands, feet, every part of you, to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The use of the word righteousness here is all about the way you and I live. That's how we're to take it. It's very obvious. Verse 16 as well. Do you know, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves to obey... You are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness. Again, it's the idea. Presenting yourselves as slaves to obey. It's talking about how you live your life. You should present yourselves, your members, as, as instruments of obedience to righteousness. And then also verse 18 Notice the use of the word righteousness again. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm not the slave of the devil anymore. I'm not the slave of sin as a Christian. I'm the slave of righteousness. What does that mean in translation? I now do righteous things. Christ has saved me. What does that mean? He's just washed away my sins given me a, an account of righteousness in heaven and a free ticket to glory and to live however I want now? Absolutely not. I have to present my members as instruments of righteousness, and if God has worked in me, I do that. Look at Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 20. Notice a similar thing here about this matter of righteousness. I've, I've picked a text that many people uh, misunderstand. 
Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now there it might seem obvious, and some people say it is obvious, that that's got to be talking about the perfect righteousness of Christ because that's the only righteousness that enables us to enter the kingdom of heaven. But what is Paul doing in the passage? Paul is exposing the wickedness of the Pharisees. And what's one word with which you could especially describe the evil conduct and character of the Pharisees? It begins with an H. Hypocrisy. They were all about the way they looked on the outside, but they were full of dead men's bones within. They were big time hypocrites. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't be like the Pharisees, just checking off all the boxes about what you do on the Sabbath and how far you walk on the Sabbath, which the Word of God says nothing about, and the way that you give, make sure you give your tithe not only of your income every Friday, but also of your anise and your mint and your cumin. In other words, you're being scrupulous about minor matters, but you're missing the big things. Don't be a Pharisee. Your righteousness has to outstrip the Pharisees. That's what Jesus is saying. The way you live has got to go a lot farther than the teachers that you have in front of you around here. And then what demonstrates that what I'm saying is right, he goes on to say, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And then what does Jesus do? He goes on to show, don't just be outward in your behavior. Make sure it's inward. It's all about how you live. That's how your righteousness will outstrip that of the Pharisees. So all these this whole section here in Matthew 5, starting at verse 17, going to the end of the chapter, is all about the way that people live, how they obey God's commandments, how they are not to be hypocrites. The point is, this understanding of righteousness is clearly in keeping with the Bible, with the New Testament, with the teaching of the Apostle Paul, with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. The breastplate of righteousness does include Christ's righteousness imputed. I would state it this way. It's especially that, but it also includes this element of the saint's godly conduct. So that's this, what the Bible teaches about righteous behavior, very, very briefly. Secondly, let's look at what it teaches about a good conscience. A good conscience. Let's look at Acts 24, verses 15 and 16. In Acts 23, Paul was standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of 70, of the elders and the priests and the leaders of the Jews. He was receiving false accusations against himself. In Acts 24, he's now, again, he's now in front of the governor, and he's find, he finds himself defending himself against the same men, but against a different... Uh, but in the, in the presence of a different judge, the Roman governor. And here's what he says in verses 15 and 16. He says, I have hope in God, which they themselves, that is the Jews who are accusing him, also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So he brings up this matter of, a con of his conscience again as he's dealing with the people accusing him falsely. Why does he keep bringing up his conscience? Well, it fits right in with this thing we're talking about. What is a good conscience? I'm going to put it in three simple statements here, and then I'll say a little bit more about it. 
A good conscience means this. If I say I have a good conscience about what you're accusing me of, I have a good conscience means while you accuse me of breaking God's commandments, I, in fact, am obeying God's commandments in that area of my life. That's the first part of a good conscience. Second, it means I am dealing biblically with my sins. Don't confuse a good conscience with perfection. I'll say more about that in a minute. Think of it this way, Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin, Ephesians 4.26. Then it says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. All right? So how do you keep a good conscience, especially if you're a person who was born with a temper and... God, by the Holy Spirit, since you've been a Christian, hasn't completely relieved you of that battle against that sin yet. He will one day if you're a Christian. It may, may not be till after you breathe your last breath in this life, but He will. And in the meantime, you're to be working against it and making progress. So when you do still sin... What does that text tell you? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. It means before you go to bed at night, after you've spoken wrathful or angry words to your spouse, you make it right. You ask the forgiveness of, you call it what it is, it was sin. You ask the forgiveness of God for it and you ask for the forgiveness of your wife. Now you do that, you know what you're doing? You're living with a good conscience. And then the third thing is, it means this, not only am I obeying God's word, I'm dealing with my sins in a biblical way, I'm also seriously working at having a good conscience, and I'm seriously working at obeying God's commandments. And because I really am seriously doing that, and I'm a Christian, and I have the Spirit of God to help me, I am actually making progress. That's a good conscience. I want to enlarge on this just a bit. Not a whole message on a good conscience, let alone a series of messages, which would be easy to do. I just want to enlarge on this, though, because this is an often misunderstood thing, having a good conscience. Even people who are really taught well, they can have a misunderstanding about this. I remember many years ago, we're in the ballpark of 40 years ago, Having a, having a conversation with a woman. And she was, from my perspective at that time, and I've seen her life since, though from a distance, she has had quite a good testimony. And as I said, she's well instructed. But in this conversation, she mentioned, uh, she, she mentioned to me a conversation she had with another Christian, and that other Christian said, I have a good conscience about this. And this woman's comment to me was almost a scoffing remark about that. As if, how could anyone say they have a good conscience? And I remember thinking to myself, this lady is thinking that a good conscience means someone lives a life of sinless perfection. And it doesn't mean that. She was speaking as if there's no such thing as a good conscience, even for a Christian, here in this world. And if that's what a good conscience meant, there would be no such thing. Paul had one. And he was still a sinner, according to Romans 7 and really the whole Bible. So this is why it's an important subject. So I'm just going to summarize in the next few minutes something from a pastoral theology lecture from Pastor Martin during my years in the academy. He summarized it very nicely. He said he spoke about what maintaining a good conscience before God and man, there's Paul's language from Acts 24:16, what it involves. And this is a vital part of a genuine walk with God. That was the point he was making in this message to us as we were young men thinking about becoming preachers someday. And he said, it's one of the three main things along with your scripture reading and meditation, your 
intake of the Word of God on a regular basis, and prayer, so Bible intake, prayer, and he said, here's the third way that you have a real, genuine life and walk with God, you maintain a good conscience. So it's an important thing. Here's what maintaining a good conscience means. It means that first, you have no controversy with God in terms of the following. Number one, a sin committed but not confessed. Remember what I said, Christians still sin. The best of Christians still sin. Paul still sinned. Well, what did Paul do when he sinned? When he was conscious of a sin, he confessed it. So let's look at it this way. I sin with my tongue against my wife at 9 a.m. on the way to church. I know it and I don't deal with it. 11 a.m. comes and I walk into this pulpit and I have not dealt with my sin by confessing it to my wife and asking her forgiveness. What do I have as I stand in this conscience? It's not in, in, this, in this pulpit. Not a good conscience. A bad conscience. Whether I want to admit it or not. If you asked me about it and I said, well, she said that first, I still sinned. And my having a good conscience has nothing to do with whether anybody else in the world has one. I know what I need to do when I sin, and if I'm going to keep a good conscience, I have to do it. Every sin of which you are conscious, you should confess. Do that, you have a good conscience. I'm not saying you have to spend all day confessing sin. Don't you sometimes, I hope sometimes you say, Lord, forgive me of this many sins of which I'm not even conscious. Even in my best of things that I do, I have them. So having a good conscience means you have no controversy with God in terms, first, of a sin committed but not confessed. Second, a duty known but not performed or are determined to perform. Again, it doesn't mean perfection. Like I've just said, it means I have no controversy with God. No controversy with God. Let's say I'm sitting there and I think about a sin I committed against someone who may be sitting here. Maybe I looked at their face and I thought, oh, you know what? Last time I talked to so-and-so, the more I've thought about it, I said something I shouldn't have, and I really should deal with that. Well, I don't think of it this way, that I should say, stop the hymn a second. I want to go and talk to my, my brother and then come back and preach. I look at it this way. When he comes out my door, or if I see him go out the other door, I'm going to follow him and I'll make it right. A duty known but not performed or are determined to perform when you have the opportunity. And then third, it means you have no controversy with God in terms of this. A truth brought to the understanding but rejected. In other words, let's say it's a biblical truth like this. I know that the Bible clearly teaches that this doctrine I'm speaking about right now is true but I don't like it. I just want to talk about the righteousness of Christ and not to have the burden of thinking I have to live like the Apostle Paul all the time. That's too persnickety for me. See what I'm saying? Well, if you know that the Bible teaches it, but you don't believe it and credit it as being true and make it a part of the way you think, and the way you believe and the way you live, you don't have a good conscience. Whether we're talking about the sovereignty of God or the importance of obeying God's commandments or whatever it is. So if you do these things, though, you can at any given moment say with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4, I know of nothing against myself. Does that mean I don't believe I've ever sinned? Paul didn't believe that. No. It means you have no controversy, conscious controversy with God 
because you go to the cross to deal with it. You take Christ's blood and you ask that Christ will wash you afresh with that blood. It's not sinless perfection. As if Paul's words were words that we can never say because we're just plain Christians, not apostles. Like that woman I mentioned thought. All right? That's the first thing that it means that you have no no controversy with God in terms of any of those things. And then secondly, it means this, that you have sought biblically to resolve any area of abnormality with your fellow man. In other words, you sin against your fellow man, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your child, whether it's a brother in the church, whether it's someone who's not even a Christian. Maybe it's in the workplace. You say, well, if I sinned against a brother in the church, and I used a word I should never use anywhere, and I said it to him, I know I really need to confess it to him. But if I do that in the workplace, you know, they talk like that all the time, and they would wonder if I came from Mars or something like that, if I went up to them and told them I sinned when I said that, and I asked their forgiveness for that, what would they think of me? Well, who cares what they think of you? Isn't that what Paul said on this subject? I don't care what any human being or any human court thinks of me. But I have to keep a good conscience between God and men. So think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 23 and 24. You're there at the altar offering your gift and then you remember, deal with your brother before you go to the house of God. It's that important. Ask forgiveness of your sins. Like Jesus said, in his prayer, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, if you forgive the sins of others, so will your Father in heaven forgive your sins. It's not a tit for tat. It's not buying salvation. It's not earning salvation. It's just dead honesty from God to us. If you don't do this kind of thing, okay, just stop calling yourself a Christian, please. Stop thinking that you have a clean slate in the court of heaven and stop thinking you're on your way to glory. That's all. You need to live that way. You need to have a good conscience. As James said, confess your trespasses to one another. In other words, not just to God. So that's a good conscience. Let me give you four caveats about that before I finish here. Four caveats. And I mean caveat in two, the both senses of the word. One, qualifications. Two, admonitions or warnings about this doctrine. The first one is the thing I've already said a couple of times. Remember. And let this stick in your mind lest you walk away from here saying, nobody can have a good conscience. Having a good conscience does not mean perfection. Think of it that way. If you have a good conscience, you're going to continue to change and become a better Christian if you're striving to live that way all the time. Let's look quickly at uh, Proverbs 24 and verse 16. Proverbs 24 and verse 16. The boys in the basketball camp didn't get all this good stuff. They only had one 45-minute message on this. Proverbs 24, 16 says this. I'll just go to the first, first part of the verse. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. In other words, the righteous man is still sinning. But you know what the righteous man does? He gets up again. In other words, he says, I'm going to confess my sin to God and ask for forgiveness. I'm going to confess my sin to my wife and ask forgiveness. And then I'm going to try next time to speak nicely the way I should speak. And I'm not giving up till I die. 
Well, what if you do that seven times in one day? Sin like that. Well, then that's what I'm going to do seven times in one day, God helping me. On a bad day, I might not say it till the next day, but I'm going to ask forgiveness for waiting. There's change, there's growth, there's serious effort, there's pain. I'm going to take pains to keep a good conscience. There's grief when I fall. There's not total victory, but I'm pressing on. And when I sin, there's confession, there's pleading. That's a huge difference between sinning and covering the sin. Why are you saying that to me? What do you mean I sinned? And then excuse making and arguing. That is not the way to keep a good conscience. That's the way to try to convince people you don't ever sin. It's foolish. And it's vain in every sense of the word. Second, another caveat. This doesn't mean that our good conduct or our righteous works contribute to our salvation. It doesn't mean they earn our salvation. It doesn't mean we're like Roman Catholics would say, well, you know, Christ has done all this for your justification, but now you need to live a righteous life and then if you, after you do that, and if it's judged by God to be good enough, then you're pronounced righteousness in the end. After your remaining sins are purged away in purgatory. That's the Roman Catholic teaching. It's not the Bible's teaching. Your righteous works add nothing to your justification, to your final salvation. All I'm talking about is one way that you can deal with accusations against you that are false and are going to hinder you in your Christian walk. Your righteous conduct, however much you might think otherwise, does not save you. It's never saved anyone. Only Christ's righteousness ever saves anyone. Third, this teaching does not in any way, therefore, lessen or minimize Christ's work in any way. The Bible clearly teaches it is only Christ's righteousness that could ever save anyone full stop. It also teaches this importance of a good conscience and obeying Christ's commandments and doing His will and having a righteous life. And then fourth, and finally, which is, follows on after what I just said, this teaching then is not legalism. It's a frequent or common objection to this kind of biblical teaching, to this whole idea. Someone says, listens to what I've said already this morning, and says, well, you're saying that my works save me then. I've said it in no uncertain terms whatsoever. They absolutely do not. Because that's what the Bible says. If I were saying that, you would be right to object. And I hope you would object with all the vehemence that you can muster. Because if I were saying that, I should never, ever be standing in a pulpit like this and spouting such things. Tonight, we will come to the way that righteous conduct and a good conscience function in practice. I've already said a number of things about it, but we'll look at it by looking at a number of Scripture passages, how that functions as armor against the devil's schemes. For now, I just want to say a few things in closing, and it's mainly this and, and just a few things that follow from it. You have two groups of people in this world. Two groups. You have those with a breastplate of righteousness. And you have those with, if I can put it in this, um, in this way, those with no chest protection. I think in terms of a catcher in baseball, he has a chest protector. All right? That's what a breastplate is. 
His is strong enough to protect against baseballs. Ours needs to be much stronger to protect against the fiery darts of the wicked one and the arrows of the devil. But you have those of the people in this world looked at from this perspective, those with the breastplate of righteousness and those with no chest protection. In other words, people who have no chest protection, it means they, have, they don't have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them as the free gift of God. The righteousness of Christ by which God looks not at your sins and mine to determine what your spiritual standing is. He just looks at Christ. That's the breastplate of righteousness. If I could say in its best form. But our breastplate of righteousness as Christians also includes our practical godly living. But if you're not a Christian, you don't have that. You don't have that. You can't have that. Because the Bible teaches, if you are not a Christian, every one of your works, every one of your works is sinful at the bottom. There's a part of our confession that teaches that, and I taught that back in the Sunday school a few years ago. Let me just give you in, in uh, six points what I taught there. I'll do it quickly. I asked the question, what is bad about the good works, quote-unquote, of unbelievers? It's these six things. And please, if you're not a Christian, don't take offense at this. I'm just explaining the truth of the Bible here. First, even the quote-unquote good, let's say an unbeliever helps a, a uh, an old woman across the street. All right, that's, that's a good thing. Their works are not of faith. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is what? It's sin. Second, they are not done in a right manner. They're done ultimately out of selfishness. Maybe like a Pharisee to show what a good person you are. But it's not done out of love, selflessness. It's selfishness. It's not done wholeheartedly and for the glory of God. And that's the third thing. The things are not done for God's glory. Not to a right end or purpose, the glory of God. But it's like the Pharisees, as Jesus said in Matthew 6. They sought glory from men in order to be seen by men. Fourth, what's wrong about them is they're ultimately sinful, therefore if they're not done for the glory of God and out of faith in God. Fifth, they are therefore ultimately not pleasing to God. As it says in Romans 7, anything, nothing that an, un, that an unbeliever does can please God because an unbeliever cannot please God. And therefore, sixth, they are not saving works. They don't make a man meet to receive grace from God. All right? So if you're an unbeliever, you have no breastplate of righteousness in any sense. And here's part of the point, and this is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Read, Mount, read the last several verses there, Matthew 7, 21 to the end. Just saying you believe in Jesus, just saying you believe in Jesus does not save. It's the total heart commitment to Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith includes. That's why Jesus said, and we will look at this passage tonight, why do you call me Lord, Lord? In other words, you're always talking about me and telling people you believe in me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do the things I tell you? And that's one of the things I emphasized the last couple of weeks on this whole matter of the armor. You strap on the belt of truth. Part of what that means is you are all in. You are all in to follow Jesus Christ. Jesus constantly tried, think of his ministry this way, he constantly was working to convince the Jews, to convince the Pharisees of this point. They did the things they did because they thought they were earning their way to heaven. 
They did what they did to get glory for themselves, not for God. They did what they did to win the approval of men, not of God. They did what they did, that means, ultimately out of love for themselves, not for others. And Jesus said it was all wrong. And your life is therefore all wrong if you're not a believer in Christ. And if you don't repent, it will continue to be all wrong and it will end all wrong. In the place that the Bible calls outer darkness, the place the Bible calls the lake of fire, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And one of the reasons I'm willing to stand here and say this to you if you are not a Christian is because I do love your soul. And I don't want you to experience that. And I'm going to say it without caring what you think of me for saying it. But the reality is also that if you will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ the Lord and ask him to forgive you of all your sins, hypocrisy and every other sin that you're guilty of, God will wash those sins away and make your soul white as snow. And you will be with him in glory. Trust in him alone to save you today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and ask that you would write it upon our hearts. Help us not to think highly of ourselves ever, but help us to think biblically at every point more and more that we might live for the glory of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.